my next guest on Tea Time with me, Ali Monjack, is Matthew Alper, author of The God Part of the Brain, a scientific interpretation of human spirituality and God. He went on a quest to find God from an early age and discovered neuroscience. He's an interesting argument about the belief in a spiritual realm and the way we have adapted these thoughts to deal with the fear of death. He has also written screenplays and is currently writing a new book. Let's find out more. Matthew, welcome to Tea Time with me, Ali Monjack. How's it going today in the city of New York? Uh, not bad. You know, we're no longer the epicenter of death. So that's good. Um, and uh, yes, otherwise it's a gorgeous sort of a post-summerish day, uh, nothing to complain about, it's all good. Brilliant, so have you been having any more sort of book ideas today or you've just really been, what, what, what's your day been like? Have you been teaching today? Have you been, what, what have you been up to? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm editing another book. I just recently finished the book, it's about 400 plus pages. It's historical fiction, totally different from what we're going to be talking about today. Um, wow. So is this your sort of like, you know, your first crack at historical fiction? Yes. So what led you to this point? Um, just, uh, I don't know. I, I've, I've written and sold screenplays. So I've actually started as a screenplay that I've now am decided to convert to a novel right so there you go and, uh, exciting so have you had the story for a long time because yeah i mean it was probably years ago now that you wrote screenplays wasn't it not terribly long ago but i had the screenplay maybe three years ago and then sat on it for a while and about a little over a year ago today i you know, started the effort to turn it into a novel. Oh, is it going to be kind of like be sit on the edge of your seat kind of novel? It's or... going to knock you off the edge of your seat. Is it going to knock me off the edge of my seat? Oh, well, that, that, that. I, I don't want you, seen. I don't want you comfortably seated on the edge of your seat. It's going to knock you off the edge. <laughs> so, you know, still, still an obsession, a natural obsession about death then? Uh, as, as you're referring to my book, no, I don't think the, I don't think that this particular novel is, 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 is pivots around death so much, but it is about human beings. And since human beings existences often pivot around death, you know, there's only two options, life or so, you know, so yes, certainly it, it plays a role in the characters of my novel to an extent. Right, okay, so that's quite interesting. So, you know, let, let, let's roll it back a bit. I mean, the first book you wrote was The God Part. The God Part of the Brain, A Scientific Interpretation of Human Spirituality. A scientific interpretation. So you're absolutely convinced that, you know, God doesn't exist. Absolutely. Well, you know, how, why, and, what's 
the evidence. And I invite him at any moment during this interview to strike me down with lightning or any other form of natural catastrophe he can bring on myself. And I and I don't know, I guess this is not for your TV audience. So this is your own personal. I'm even going to challenge. This is for him. Just to give him added motivation to strike me with lightning. And then you can have that to air to all of your listeners, which would be pretty exciting to see an actual divine lightning strike at one of your more obnoxious guests. So let's see what happens. We got an hour. Anything goes. Maybe he'll get hit with lightning. Maybe not. We'll find out. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see about that. I mean, you <laughs> you have been brought up. You're you're from a Jewish background, aren't you? I mean, what what do your your parents or your your family make of your book? So. <clears throat> Now, I've been to London and I actually spent some time there going to school. Um, I don't know what the average person in England uh, understands when they hear like someone being raised as a Jew. I think most of the Jewish people I came across in London seem to be living in um, more enclave-like neighborhoods where they kept to themselves and seemed like they were fairly religious. And even though we have that here in New York City and America, too, most of America's Jewish population, particularly New York City's Jewish population, is extremely secular, as in non-religious, as in probably with a predominance towards atheism. So there's a lot of atheist Jews, at least here in New York. I mean... A lot of the artists and the comedians and the actors, you know, people in entertainment and the arts are the secular Jews, the scientists, you know. So my being raised as a Jew meant for the first four years of my life, we had a menorah for Hanukkah until my parents said, this is stupid. Nobody cares what a menorah is anyway. So we're just going to have a Christmas bush and you get Christmas presents from now on. So nobody cares. My sister's married to an Irish Catholic guy. We're, we're, not, a, we're not religious people. Um, so not only were my parents not religious, but they were also completely non-spiritual. They had no, and continue to this day, to have no interest in sort of the deeper philosophical consequences of life and the, you know, questions regarding the spiritual or, or not spiritual nature of my, man, my parents don't care. When I first heard about this death thing as a child and realized that myself and everyone that I care for is going to die, uh, I became curious as to what does that mean? More or less, am I a purely physical being? who will be ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and that's the end of the story? Or am I, am I a partially spiritual being so that even though my physical body will die, I know that as a fact, that some other essence in me will persevere so that in a sense I will be immortal. Even though I will lose my body, I'm immortal. So I wanted to get to the bottom more or less of am I immortal or not? 
And the answer is, or so you think, so you've kind of, you know, been been down the, the scientific reasons why we manifest God in your eyes. Isn't that right? Right. Well, that's, again, I mean, the basic premise of my book suggests that, yes, that it is that there is no divine presence or spiritual reality. Um, would you like me to run through the basic premise so that maybe your listeners will have a sense of what the conversation's yeah, about? I think you should run through the basic premise because, you know, there are people out there who really believe in the spiritual. They do, you know. Of course, the, the, most of the... Should everything in life be explained? You know, should everything in life be explained? Well, well could and should are two different questions. Can everything be explained? explained no can this be explained yes should it be explained that's a subjective question some people would prefer ignorant bliss and other people want the blinding light of harsh reality in their face so essentially and i'll run through the basic premise here um so here i was looking for an answer as to whether or not I'm immortal or immortal. I'm a spiritual or physical being. Studied a lot of science, a lot of philosophy. Found that there was no definitive proof one way or the other. And kind of writ wrote the whole art question off as an un unresolvable. Just time to move on. Uh, um, and then I had a bit of an epiphany in my 20s. And essentially, the epiphany kind of went a little bit like this. So after having studied a lot of science, one of the primary sort of principles of Darwinian genetic evolutionary theory is that if there is a, uh, a trait, a physical trait that's universal to a species, it means it's genetically conceived. So... The fact that all humans have a nose in the middle of their face or that cats have tails or that monarch butterflies have a specific pattern on their wings. It's not an accident. It's written in the DNA. Right. Will you, will you would you concur with that much? Mm, I would concur with that much. It, it's the personality thing. That, okay, uh, we're not even talking. We're, we're not yeah, even going there. We're not. This is, okay. I'm not asking about personalities. Will you at least concur that it's not an accident that if you have a child, he or she will most likely have a nose in the middle of their face and two eyes and a mouth and two ears? Yeah. And, okay. and that's. Unless, you know, scientifically that doesn't happen then. Biologically it doesn't happen. Sure. Unless they are one of the, uh, unless they are an, an aberration, a mutation of some sort, they will fall in line with their ancestral DNA and they will come out just like a cat will come out with a tail. Right? And a dog yeah. with a snout and a, a whale with a blowhole. Okay. It's, in, it's written in our DNA. There's a science called sociobiology, and it says that the same principle applies to universal behaviors. It's not an accident that dogs bark and cats meow and beavers build dams or human beings have language. It's written in the DNA. It's wired into the animal, into the species. 
take a kitten away from its mother at birth, and it's still going to grow up to, to meow, to groom itself a certain way, to mate a certain way. These are inborn behaviors. Now, since all instincts... So yes, what happened to nature or nurture? Sure. There are, there are okay. nature and nurture, but there are certain things that are an inherent part of our nature because they're hardwired into us. They're represented by regions in the brain. So, for instance, all human cultures have language. We could say humans are a linguistic animal. It is part of our nature. You go to any culture, the jungles of the Amazon, people who've never had exposure to other peoples, they are going to communicate linguistically, something unique to humans. They are going to put together combinations of sounds that will be represent, symbolically representative of objects giving us what we call language. It's not an accident that now, because all behavior is generated from the brain, that would, that would basically presume that somewhere in all humans, there are specific parts of our brain that generate our linguistic intelligence. And with the help of neuroscience, we know these parts. There's the Wernicke's area, the Broca's area, the angular gyrus, parts of the brain that, for instance, if you suffered damage to, got banged in the head or a tumor that impinged on one of those regions, you would lose some part of your capacity to either communicate or comprehend language. It's so, uh, I just, I just go on. I've got a question. Yeah. Go for it. Personalities, personalities are really quite different, aren't they? We're, we're going to follow this thread for now. You're going to have to bear with me. Personalities, you're just opening up like a, a, a diversion. Let's stick with language for the time being, okay? For instance, the same reason that all humans, when they're sad, cry, or when they're happy, smile. These are instincts. They're built into us. So I applied these, that principle to the fact that every human culture, no matter how isolated has believed in some form of a spiritual reality, suggesting that it's possible that it's an inherent part of our hard wiring, of the way we're wired to perceive reality, that there are indeed perhaps parts of our brain that generate these perceptions that, that arise all over the world, coming in different forms, just like no one's born speaking English or French or Russian. We're taught those languages, but we're born with the template, the, the mechanics in the brain to come up with a language and then communicate through it. Just like no one's born Muslim or Christian or Jewish, but we're all born with the template to bind to a belief system and adhere to it. And I write about it. I write it about it as an evolutionary adaptation, a coping mechanism that was selected into our species to help us survive our unique awareness of death. So that essentially the existential anxiety and anguish that comes with our species knowing we are going to die, which is unique to our animal. No other animal has self-conscious awareness and has that perception of things as a result of self-conscious awareness, which made us the first animal aware of our own mortalities and then suffer this type of existential anxiety as a result 
I believe that nature selected parts of a brain through our evolution that helped us cope with that, the pain of inevitable death by, by basically building into us, wiring That's us. That's very cheery. That's very cheery. I didn't say I was coming here as Santa Claus to hand out presents to everybody. I, I'm here with the truth, you know, with basically a scientific truth, because now with the use of the various neural scans, they are finding indeed that there are parts of the brain that are universal to the species from which we generate these perceptions, these belief systems from which all religions have, a, have sprung up around the world. So that basically we're wired to have these thoughts, to believe in some form of magical thinking, some version of the supernatural, the paranormal, Every culture is superstitious. Every culture believes in the notion of a spirit and, and has a ritual that anticipates sending that deceased person's spirit to another world. So These what do you say about, you know, the sighting of ghosts? Do you reckon that they're a figment of someone's imagination? Sightings of ghosts are, are on par with sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, um, you know, the Bigfoot. And every other religious icon and prophet that has ever been written about. So you really, really don't think that any of this exists. Have you ever spent time around Buddhist monks? Uh, they've handed me these chips that I was supposed to give them money for in the street. But other than that, I can't say I've lived with them. Have you ever been to a Buddhist monastery? Yes, I have. And I've known Buddhists, and I'm quite familiar with Buddhist belief systems. You've got Theravada and Himayana, two different schools of thought, etc. But okay, what about what about the Buddhists? What do you want to say about them? Well, I mean that you know, they, they believe in a whole circle of life and that the universe and we are made up of energy, aren't we? Right. Well, everything's made up of energy. Matter and energy, remember equals MC squared? Energy yeah. and matter are one and the same thing. Anything you could pick up, your clothing, your hair, it's all energy. Absolutely. But you cannot make the presumption that the energy of your conscious experience will live beyond your physical reality. So, so you don't instance, believe in positive energy or anything like that? You think it's all a lo load of... Yes. Baloney. Bunch of hooey. Baloney. <laughs> well, that would almost presume that if you go out in the world with cheery thoughts, only good things are going to happen to you. Good luck with that. Because ultimately, you're going to die. Everyone you love is going to die. You're going to have sickness, disease, COVID, yada, yada. You can go out there with the cheeriest attitude in the world and the same horrific things that happen to everyone are going to happen to you. Now, will you enjoy your experience more because you went through life with a positive, upbeat attitude and try to see the world as half full instead of half empty? Probably. But will it spare you from death? Hell no.
you. You're incredibly cheery. I love it. I really do. <laughs> um, I was gonna wear my don't. I was gonna wear my don't worry, be happy T-shirt, but it it had pizza sauce on it. So. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, no, I, it, it's a shame because you know the viewers are really missing out now. <laughs> that that that's brilliant. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's quite a theory and it's quite some time since you actually wrote the golf cart, isn't it? Um, and since then, you've got quite a following of neuroscientists and, you know, you're, you're sort of part of the, the neurotheology world, really, aren't you? Where, um, you know, well, it, it's all about science, you know, that the, the, we function and... I still really don't get the whole personality thing. So you're saying that personality well, they ask me what, what about what reaction in your brain? How does how does that how does you know how is a personality formed? Right. So personality, you know, it seems to be the mainstream consensus that who we are as individuals is almost 50-50 nature-nurture. We're all born with certain predispositions. Um, and, and that can be proven is in our genes because look at all the studies done with identical twins, even separated at birth, raised in utterly different households, often end up with the same attractions to, to you know, other people, uh, the same hobbies, the same interests, the same tastes in food, clothing, music. It's really remarkable what twin studies reveal, that so much of who we are is in our genes. And of course, then there's the environmental. So if you had an identical twin and she was separated at birth, and let's say raised by abusive alcoholic parents, you know, assuming you were raised in a healthier background. Obviously, when you guys met at age 30, you would be two different people coming from two different backgrounds. There would certainly be overlap, but just to draw the, the you know, an illustration of sort of the, the differential between um, environmental influence versus genetic influence, you know, that's all you're dealing with. And as far as the genetic influence you know, humans have a certain, let's say, categories of traits, how joyous or melancholy a person will be, how daring or risk averse they're going to be, how, look, a lot of people are born at five years old, you have a musical savant who hears Beethoven being played in the living room, sits at the piano and plays it note for note in perfect time. They're musically savant. You know, they're, they're, they, they have a brilliance for music born, you know, into them. Other people are born tone deaf. So a lot of our character, a lot of our interests, our tastes, you know, are, are, we're basically born with. And like you said, then you've got another portion of depending on the nurturing. Were you born to a loving family that encouraged you to go and play the piano? Or every time you listen to music, were you beaten by your parents who are Taliban, you know? Yeah, I mean, that there is that. I mean, that there's, 
you know, outer influences, isn't there as well, you know, of, of what actually happens to you as a person. It is very sort of forming, whether it's your early years, you know, or as you grow up and you become an adult. I mean, for you, you yeah. just basically um, sort of tripped the light fantastic, didn't you, on your sort of quest to find out um, whether God existed. Um, I'm not sure what that means, that I tripped the light fantastic in my search for that, but maybe, okay. Um, I, I was meaning that, you know, you experimented with, with psychedelic drugs, um, marijuana. Yes, yes. And, my feeling, my, my yeah. feeling as a teenager was I'm going to leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of spiritual knowledge. I'm going to study every world religion, every spiritual belief system, compare them, see if one seems to offer something, another one doesn't that might reflect of something that represents the truth. I experimented with psychedelic drugs as there were a lot of authors like Carlos Castaneda, et cetera, who were writing books about, you know, the sort of spiritual potency of certain plants that could help, you know, as Jim Morrison said, break on through to the other side. You know, I wanted to know if there was a portal through which to break on through to. So, yes, I experimented with drugs and meditation and studying religion, and but mostly with my faith put in science and philosophy, as maybe those would be the means by which there would be an answer. And then I came up empty-handed, and again, it wasn't until I came up with this notion of the universality of belief that I realized that it was a cognitive trait, that it was coming from within our own heads. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you, I know, I know you have a nephew, um, I mean, when your nephew was born and you held him in your arms, um, I mean, what, what were your first thoughts? This little baby is in my arms and what, what were your first thoughts about, you know, this, this life force coming into the world? Probably, I hope he doesn't poop because I don't know how to change a diaper. <laughs> the, oh, second, wow. the second thought might have been, I hope he grows up to be a wonderful person. Did you? Yeah. So a good, kind person. I mean, how do you sort of determine, though, you know, the way people are? I mean... You do get good, kind people in life. You do get some really horrible people in life who will turn you over and be awful. You mean, mean like how... the you mean like the ones who are running our countries these days, like <laughs> those people. Anyway, um, again, it's all a nature nurture thing. Things like sociopathy are partly wired into us. Some people are born to be sociopathic. Some people are born with a, a tendency towards altruistic behaviors. They're going to be givers. Others are gonna be takers. Some are gonna be born with narcissistic personality disorders. Their the wiring in their brain's a little skewed. Some are gonna be born with a predisposition to schizophrenia. They'll have no control over it at age, between ages like 
usually 14 and 21, something is going to trigger something and they're going to snap and they're never going to be in touch with the real world ever again. Was it something they did wrong? Was it because they weren't thinking good enough thoughts? No, it's just an illness. It's just like someone's born with a heart murmur. You know, that's not because they weren't thinking good thoughts or God didn't like them. It's just biology. Have you ever been in love? Well, that's irrelevant. But if the question is, does love represent some transcendental experience beyond, let's say, scientific explanation, the answer is no. They know all of the parts of... Okay, this is a good question for you. How do you scientifically determine love? So there are parts of the brain that are specific to the experience we have that we call love. There are neurotransmitters specific to the experience that we call love. When when a mother, for instance, gives birth, her body is flooded with vasopressin and oxytocin, two, two chemicals that make us feel bonded to the person we're with. When people have sex, their, bo- their brains flood, get flooded with oxytocin and um, vasopressin, neurotransmitters that make you feel bonded to the person that you then see and smell and hold because you had sex with them, because your biology is saying, you know, bond up with this person and make us some babies because that's all life cares about. Um, When you have that baby, your brain will be flooded. So no matter who's handed to you at that moment, you're in love with. Now the nurse could switch the baby by accident at birth and hand you the wrong baby. Doesn't matter because you're so flooded with that chemistry, you're gonna lay eyes on someone else's baby and you would jump in front of a moving train to save someone else's baby because your brain played a trick on you with chemistry. Right. I, I see your point. I mean, I do see your point. I know a little bit about psychology um, and, you know, cortisol, dopamine, serotonin running through your brain and what, what it does to your nerve endings. Um but, you know, the thing is, you know, Matthew, someone like me is quite spiritual. I like to think I'm quite spiritual. Um, and, you know, I, do, I just think that there's more than, you know, a DNA and science. Right. OK. But, 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 but look at look at what you're saying. You're saying, I think there's more. So you're basing a belief system that you've chosen to live by on because you feel like there has to be more. You think that there has to be more. Think of all the people with all the thoughts they have in their head. Go on Facebook for 10 minutes and try not to gag when you look at all of the thoughts going on in people's heads. That's not science. You can't rely on what your personal feelings and thoughts are about the world to rely on as a fundamental truth. They're just your thoughts. They're how you feel. Because, and why do we feel that way? Because of the God part of the brain. Because you're wired. In your brain, there are parts that compel you to believe that there has to be something more. 
because without that, those feelings and beliefs that you have, life would be too painful in knowledge, with the knowledge that you are going to die and that everyone you love is going to die. So you've been wired. There's a lens in your head that all the information that goes through that lens gets a spiritual twist to it. So you're going to interpret all of your reality with this built-in sense that there's more, that there's something deeper and greater. And in the end, what does that deeper and greater mean? It means that when your body dies, your ghost that's floating around inside your physical being will be released and float around and get to keep living. And therefore, who needs to fear death? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I do. I, I've had a light bulb moment. I'm not okay. actually frightened of dying, though. I'm not. Huh? I'm not frightened of dying. I'm not. Sure. And you, might, and you might tell yourself that, and everyone might tell themselves that, but every day, everything you do is because you're terrified of dying. You look both ways when you cross the street. Why? Because you're terrified of dying. When you're, when you're pushing your three-year-old daughter in a stroller, you're looking every which way. Does that person look dangerous? Does that curb look dangerous? Is the fire still on on that stove? A billion thoughts running through your head constantly because you're terrified that your child could die, could get harmed. And subconsciously, we're all thinking those thoughts every day, all day long, living because we're afraid of dying, doing things to make sure we keep a roof over really our head. Is it really that black and white? Is it Pretty really? much. Because humans are, like I said before, we're, on, we're only doing one of two things, living or dying. And if we're not dead yet, then we're doing our best to avoid being there. So... And so subconsciously, you know, one could all, we could all be cavalier and be like, death, bring it on. Doesn't scare me. It terrifies you. It terrifies me. Subconsciously, it's like little demons with pitchforks chasing our psyche all day long. But, and, 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 and what fends I off the... Did, I did, knowing and, what, knowing what you know about you know the neurotransmitters and um neuroscience and whatever else that goes on in the brain yeah what yeah, about it i mean surely you are you might you must be terrified all the time of of what of death it doesn't put me in a place to be more terrified or less terrified some people convince themselves they're less terrified because they put this faith in some imaginary reality that gives them a sense that even though one day their body will die, they're going to somehow live forever. And even if they lose a loved one like their child, it's okay. They're in a better place. They're floating around in heaven. I can even talk to them. They hear me. I know they're listening, but that's faith. And that's where that part, that lens in your brain that was planted in you by nature to help you cope. Okay, right, okay. So 
when you die, you just, your body shuts down, your brain shuts down. That's it. Okay, so most of what matters to us is our brain. You know, my hands just pick things up. My heart just squishes back and forth, pumping blood. I could even live with an artificial one. As a matter of fact, all of us could be an artificial everything except brain. Because when we say, when we refer to ourselves as me, we're talking about our per like what you call our personality, our conscious experience. Right now, if they, if they had the technology and you had some terminal illness, theoretically, they could come up with a synthetic version of you that looks exactly like you do now. You could even make a better version. Maybe you want to be two inches taller. Make sure to tell the Android manufacturer you want to be an inch or two taller, whatever the case. They take your brain out, they stick it in the Android, and you and there, and you're you all over again without a hitch. So really, we're just our brain if we're talking about consciousness. And the problem is once our brain dies, consciousness dies. Now, to illustrate, to give you an example, to, to emphasize how meaningful that is, realize that you don't even have to die to lose consciousness. You could get Alzheimer's. You could get traumatic brain injury. You could get banged in the head. And while you're still alive, your conscious self is compromised, maybe even gone. You won't recognize your own children. That's horrible. So, that's awful, isn't it? It I mean, is that's... awful, but it's a reality. It's a reality of our organ, the brain. The so fact what that you're saying is if if you suffer from Alzheimer's, that part of your brain is dead, the memory yeah. center, the frontal well, lobe. Well, well, yes. The, the, what happens is you get things called neural plaques that start jamming up the works. So your thoughts are no longer coherent. Your memories start to dissolve, but you're alive. Someone could say, oh, Allie, she's fine. She's alive. She's right down the block there. But it won't be you anymore. You'll be gone. So we don't even necessarily have to die to lose consciousness. But when we do die, when the heart stops pumping blood and the brain stops getting oxygen because all the cells, the neurons in the brain need oxygen to keep living and the brain starts to die, it doesn't come back. A cell is dead. It's dead. There's no Lazarus cell out there that comes back. So when your brain dies, everything that you know to be you, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your memories, your tastes, disintegrate completely, never to be returned again. So you're gone. It's game over. We're dead. There is no ghost in the machine that floats out of our head and goes up to heaven and plays learns to play a harp. No, you don't know. Okay. Nobody knows. Listen, I also don't know that there isn't an invisible leprechaun dancing on my head right now. I don't know. I can't say I absolutely know that that's not happening. (laughs) So, but the burden of proof in any argument lies in proving something exists, not that it doesn't. So, all you're suggesting is based in your faith that you feel it so strongly inside that there must be something else be beyond your physical presence because you feel it so strongly 
it has to be real. Just your feelings don't make it real. Yeah, no. So, but my feelings are happening because of all these chemicals in my brain. And all the wiring in your brain. And all the wiring in my brain. Right. And if someone to start the messing with the chemicals. The hmm? next time I tell somebody I love them, I, I'm, yeah, it's going to take on a whole new meaning. I'm just going to think, oh, well, is the chemicals in my brain there doing that? It's, it's absolutely what's happening, but you are a culmination of all of those neurons and chemicals, and you are therefore justified in owning yourself in your lifetime. So if you decide to say... group of cells. Fine, but that's all it is. But those cells come all come together to make you, you. So if you feel you love someone or you hate someone else, you're entitled to those feelings. Sure, if you want to break down the origins of those feelings, yeah, it'll come down to neurotransmitters and, and synapses. But nevertheless, within our lifetime, that experience is what we call us. There's nothing wrong with owning us. I like listening to a certain kind of music. I enjoy that experience. I don't feel I have to say, you know, my brain, the neuro, the, you know, the, the, the neurons and synapses in my head, you know, have an affinity for that type of sound. You know, I could just say, no, I like the Beatles, done. You know, I don't have to necessarily break everything down to its scientific origins. I'm living through my experience as a person. But at the same time, that doesn't mean I'm not aware of the fact of the underlying reality that I am a biological machine. Right, I've got a question because it's quite um, a sort of hot topic of the moment and it's really quite talked about is the law of attraction and manifesting. I'm sure you've heard all about it because, you know, it, it must be quite an interesting subject as far as, you know, neuroscience is concerned. I mean, you know, this, this whole idea that you're attracting what you want from the universe. So, I mean, what, what's a, neuro, a neuroscientist wouldn't even pay any heed to that conversation. No more than if like, if three neuroscientists were in a room and they overheard two women talking about Santa Claus, they would be just as interested in the conversation of Santa Claus as they would with this, you know, law of attraction notion that, you the universe gives you what you put out, blah, blah, blah. Then explain why most of the big houses on the planet are owned by evil, horrible, hideous people who are sociopathic slave drivers. And most of the decent people in the planet are blue collar workers who are working themselves raw to make a living while the hideous people live on the big houses on the hill or run our nations, etc. It's it's not like, you know, oh, if you have good thoughts and you put them out, then you're going to so live a good life and good things are going to come back to you. Okay, so do you think we make our own luck then? Do you I, think don't, luck really I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't even believe in free will. Some people are born to be driven, others not. But I do, there's a quote by Samuel Goldwyn who was the movie, the first movie producer, part of MGM Studios. And he, he has a line, he said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. 
I like that. That you make your own luck in that, yeah, if you work hard towards something, you are more likely, you're bringing up the probability that luck will be on your side. Obviously, if you have an aspiration to one day live in a house with a swimming pool, but you decide you're going to sit on your butt and eat Cheetos, chances are your dream isn't going to come true. But the harder you work, the luckier you may get. But you may work your heart out. And just when it seems things are going wonderful, you find out that you have cancer. So, I mean, there is no, nothing's guaranteed. It's all just, all of life is just a random roulette wheel being spun by, by, by fates that, you know, we have no control over. And we can, we can hope that our efforts will pay off somehow. That if we're good to the world, people will be good to us. But nothing's guaranteed. It's not like a vending machine where you put a quarter in and the thing you push the button comes out. No, of course not. But I mean, you know, you have to work hard in life. It's the only way forward. Um, but I'm just, it's an interesting take um, to, to find out what you actually think about luck. So let's move on because the, the last book that you wrote was um, Icarus of Brooklyn, wasn't it? So because you actually, on your quest to find um god or you know god or not god god or not god um you fell into depression well it's a longer more complex story than that but part of it involves you know having partaken in too many psychedelic drugs that caused sort of a, a problem with my thinking. So, um, but yeah, the book's Icarus of Brooklyn, a spiritual quest gone wrong. It's a memoir. People went, would often ask, why did I write the God part of the brain? So I realized that I had an interesting backstory regarding my spiritual quest and how I came to this conclusion so I wrote a, a, a memoir that deals with my mostly childhood and adolescent years um, regarding a person on a quest to figure out if or not there is a God. But, you know, Muffy, what, what I'm going to drive at now is the fact that, you know, you, you recovered from depression and, you know, you, you've even met someone like me. But... <laughs> I mean, you, you've um, you've basically recovered from depression. So, I mean, in terms of, I mean, you know, th this isn't spiritual. This is just giving people hope, isn't it? That you can, you know, mental health is so much more talked about than it ever was before. And I think, you know, it's about helping people, isn't it? Overcome those kind of things. How did you do it? How did you overcome depression? If you didn't have a spiritual belief because quite often I see around me that somebody will come through depression or you know um situational depression for example not not necessarily clinical depression but situational depression right because they have a belief you know they have a belief they have faith that you know that they have a spiritual belief so 
how do you did you get through depression um right, right. well it was more than just depression but but yes the way for the most part what helped me get past that period in my life was making contact with the right doctor who was a psychopharmacologist who ultimately knew what drugs to put me on to get my chemistry back on track. And for most people who have a serious case of clinical depression, all of the faith in the world is not going to pull them out of it. Ultimately, they will at some point need some combination of psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. Right. Which is so that, that that combined, you eventually managed to get better, and you know, kind of. I, I suppose you you work out a lot. Do you work out? Do you? Keep fit. Is this the you part know. where I'm supposed to take my shirt off and flex? <laughs> you pro you promised no. there'd be no nudity on this show. <laughs> no, don't worry. <laughs> so do I work? Yes, I work out. <laughs> um, but you know, going through all of this as you went through it, and you know, as you said, you you know, you had a a therapist, and you were taking the right medication. Um, I mean, did you think, you know, oh, well, I'll work out as well, look after my body? Because surely, I mean, we know, don't we, scientifically, that, you know, your body has an effect on your brain. Yeah, but then but if, if we went with exclusively that notion, that would presuppose that people who are fit are happy and people who aren't are not, as if, like, people who are overweight or out of shape or all miserable and all the fit people who are doing yoga are just, you know, beaming beacons of happiness. It's again, it's a crapshoot. You know, then you, you read about celebrities. Oh, they're beautiful. Oh, they have beautiful children. Oh, they lived a great life. They have a house with 50 rooms in it and then they blow their brains out. I mean, nothing's guaranteed. Yes, I, I like to stay fit, not because I feel like it'll boost my spirits. But because I like to play in the world, I like to ride my bike, I like to be able to swim and ski and play sports. That's fun for me. So in doing so, I happen to keep fit. But I'm not like lifting weights thinking, oh, if I keep doing this with pieces of metal, my happiness is going to go up. Okay, that's interesting. That is interesting because a lot of people do benefit. Um from you know keeping physically fit and it, it kind of does it yes, kind of I think, go on their libido a little bit doesn't it yes if if you are if people who are more fit um yes are more likely to feel good physically have less discomfort less likely to develop things like diabetes etc yes it could lead to sexual, you know, to a, an, an enhanced sexual libido versus not. Um, so yeah, there are distinctly health benefits to staying fit and therefore psychological benefits because, you know, if your body is in pain, more likely you're going to have other things to be sad about. And yet then there are people with, let's say, diabetes who are walking around with a big smile on their face, you know, laughing all day long and other people who aren't. So Again, it's all kind of a crapshoot. It's hard to sort of pinpoint any universal law of 
who's happy and who isn't. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like to stay fit because I want to be physical in the world and I want to have more options of things I can do. So if I want to, if I see a pretty mountain and I say, Ooh, it'd be fun to hike that I can do that. So, yeah. So, I mean, you, you fully recovered anyway. So that, that is the main thing. Did it, did it take you a long time to re recover from? Once I was put on the right medication within like six weeks to two months, I was pretty much back to normal and ready to go back to college and all of that. This was all took place when I was like 19. Wow. So, I mean, you know, you're, I, I hope you don't mind me sort of giving your age away, but you're, you're in your late 40s now, aren't you? I'm an old man. <laughs> you're not an old man. Um, if no, you're I'm actually old, older than, I'm in, woman, I'm in my mid-50s. Are you? Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So... So yeah, no, I mean, what an experience though, and it has kind of, um, yeah, taught you a lot, hasn't it, that you've been able to share with the world. I mean, when did you ever think, gosh, I, I, I have actually cracked the, the God part of the brain. I mean, what, at what moment, once you have released the book, did you think, God, you know what? People are really taking me seriously. Now, I know you've had a lot of interest, a lot of interest um, from neuroscientists, but was there one particular scientist that you just thought, wow, do you know what? I think I really know what I'm talking about now. No, I did not need the validation of people who I came up with an idea that they wish they had. <laughs> and since I wrote my book in 1998, which was the first in its field, there are probably now about 250 books written by the top neuroscientists all over the world on this topic. And I know that I came first. So, and to this day, I've seen a lot of their books and I don't feel like any one of them has added one iota to the conversation that I made a point when I wrote this book to cover every aspect. Now it did take going through six editions where I added chapters here and there. But, um, but, uh, yeah, no, I did not. I look, it took a lot of work to, to write this book, a lot yeah. of research. I wasn't going to go into it unless I was fairly confident that I was onto something new and different and original and important. So the minute I came up with the concept, literally thought to myself, the God part of the brain I wrote it on a piece of scrap paper, stuck it over my computer, and I was like, that's it. I now know what the next three years of my life at least are going to look like. Put everything else in my life aside and just started writing this book. Wow. So it took you three years to write it. <clears throat> and what about Icarus of Brooklyn? Did that, that, that probably didn't take quite as long, did it? As you said, that was like, you know, the, the, the backlog of how. Yeah, it's write. like a, it's a prequel. It's a prequel. It's a memoir that just tells the story of why I came out with the God part of the brain. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, an interesting predicament to be in, isn't it? <laughs> um. we're, all, we're all in our own interesting predicaments. 
because mine is mine. It, it, it is an interesting predicament to be in, but you know, that there's nothing else out there other than us. Um, and yeah, that 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 concept in it, its own way is a bit strange because you know we have been programmed to believe in something more, something bigger than us. That's right. Right. And the minute you give it up, that notion, we you but we become like spiritual orphans. We're no longer connected to the universe. We're just ants spinning around on this pebble in the middle of a, un, a meaningless universe. That's a lot to give up. Do you really think that, though? Is that your entire belief? I mean, surely you are in love with neuroscience and how we function as human beings. Well, I don't know if I'm in love with it. It was the it was the science that I needed to get to the bottom of to to, you know, sort of lay out my hypothesis. But uh, do I love neuroscience? It's OK. I love all, actually I love all the sciences and I think physics is the most intriguing of all. Really? Why is that? Because it's the most fundamental science of all, because underlying all atomic processes are physics, you know, is physics. So it's the foundation of everything. Did you ever follow Stephen Hawking when he was alive? Um, I don't think Stephen Hawking is a particularly important physicist. He was a pop culture icon at a particular time. But if you were, for instance, to go right now onto the internet and look up top 50 physicists in the history of humankind, he will not be on that list. He won't be on the top 100 list. No. There's no particular theory that he put forth that changed the way we see reality. The one idea he thought he had in a brief history of time, he retracted thereafter and said, actually, he doesn't even think that that's right. And it wasn't. So, you know, I think that he was just a popularized guy who sold a lot of books. Um, I don't have anything against him. But like I said, if you were to buy an intro to physics book, certainly Einstein and Newton and Leibniz and all of these different people will be in there. Hawking will not because yeah. he didn't say anything that important in the end. No, no, no. I mean, who would you say sort of, you know, learning more about physicists um, historically? Who was your favorite physicist? Uh, well, I mean, to me, the, the two super giants are Newton and Einstein. Hmm. Newton gave us sort of the, the foundation of Newtonian physics, which is physics relating to all things that are atomic or bigger. And Einstein sort of broke the mold by giving us the model of quantum physics, of all the physics related to those things that are smaller than atoms, subatomic. So between those two, you know, they really kind of are the most important, I think, the most important physicists. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was sort of really sort of thinking back to somebody like Galileo or, um, you know, even further back than, or is he? I'm Galileo, not... Galileo just Galileo was just one of the one of the first people to make an observation. He was he was he was he was more an astronomer than a physicist. Hmm. I mean, even even before Galileo, you had Copernicus suggesting that you know the Earth was not the center of the universe; that we actually, you know, revolve around the sun. So that happened like a couple centuries before even Galileo. Galileo was an astronomer, not a physicist per se. Yeah. Um, Right, yeah. <laughs> um, right, I've got one more question for you. Um, do you think there's other life form in the universe? Besides you? Um, <laughs> I, I, yes, I do. I believe that the universe is pretty, pretty vast. I believe that there is probably life on other planets. More importantly, though, do I believe we will ever have contact with any other life form? No. Mm. No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know what to say. So Whatever you don't it is, it's too the, far away. Well, stories, you don't, don't believe that, you know, I mean, there has been reports that um, a spaceship's landed in Rockwell and um, in uh -huh. the... Yeah, you can put those in the same dr drawer or folder as the again the Loch Ness monster, ghost, and Santa Claus. Right. Okay. Just wanted to know. Just wanted to know. Right. Well, look. Do you know what? It has been great chatting with you. Um, Likewise. And, and um, so, are you going to tell us or give us a, a little clue as to what your novel is called, or is that kind of like under wraps at the moment? It's called The Bastard of Midgetville. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a great book. Anyway, yeah. I'm just going to say thank you for your time. You're quite welcome.